I brought an antique with me to uh, demonstrate a point today. This is an antique Bible. It's been recovered twice. It has uh, much of the book of Revelation, James, and Hebrews wrapped in plastic. That's because I retired it many, many years ago. In this Bible, in Acts, the 18th chapter, and it's an old King James English Oxford edition, the smaller one, there's a very faded but still faintly visible red check mark in the margin by verse number 23. I'd like to tell you how that check mark got there. You see, I had to come to the truth of God around a very large obstacle. His name was Herbert W. Armstrong. You didn't have that obstacle. You didn't have to come to the truth of God with my father as an obstacle. As a matter of fact, though some of you here are active in God's church long since my father has died, and many of you might not have even known him, the bulk of you did, and many of you have even met him personally, and many of you have been members of the former Radio Church of God, then Worldwide Church of God, and perhaps have heard him preach dozens of times. Well, as a young man out of the Navy, I had all of my standard arguments that were in place like any other preacher's kid who didn't especially like the way he had to grow up and didn't like being the kid in the little Saturday for Sunday keeping church in the unincorporated part of Eugene, Oregon, with two outhouses, his and hers, uh, unpainted old clapboard church with hand-hewn pews that my father and some of the other people made with their own hands, and uh, that crazy preacher in Eugene that thought we ought to keep Saturday. So, of course, growing up with all of those resentments that the average 14 to 16-year-old gra gradually begins to develop against a parent anyway, Dad, you can't tell me how to live my life. It's my life, and I'm going to live it the way I want to, I said. Of course, I kind of squeaked because I was only about five, two and a half when I said that, and my voice was a high uh, soprano. But I looked very old because I hung around the store by the junior high school with a cigarette in my mouth at age 14, and I looked really rough and tough like I'd just come back from the wars, and everybody knew I was old and I was in. Back then it was in like Flynn. Remember that? Because Errol Flynn was definitely in. We knew that. We didn't know what that meant. But to stand around there with your hot dog for lunch and a cigarette in your face when you were only 14, you knew that you were in. So as I grew up, I resented very much my father's religion, and I resented Saturday for Sunday. On one occasion, I believe it was probably in the second semester of my first year at Ambassador College, father required, in order for me to keep a job given to me by my brother-in-law, Mr. Vern Matson, who was here a few months ago in July, that paid me thirty-seven fifty a week, which was money for gas, beer, and cigarettes. I was going to lose that job because all the jobs on Ambassador College campus were to be reserved for students. When the fall term started, I was required to take at least a 10-hour load. So I loaded up on voice lessons, chorale, physical education, and Spanish. But unfortunately, they told me I also was required to take at least one Bible class. I did, and Mr. John Hill and I, he was just John then, John David Hill, uh, sat back in the back, shooting spit wads at each other and drawing caricatures of my father and giggling them over, over them uh, all the first semester. In the early second semester, I had picked up a national magazine. I used to bring my mother to tears with arguments because finally uh, my attitude was so bad she would just give up in frustration and burst out crying because of my arguments against the church and the way people in the church were acting. And you can't tell me these are Christians and so on because they were 
a lot of them, gossiping or making mistakes. And, of course, don't bring a carnal-minded person in among a bunch of church people and let those church people show all these flaws and mistakes in their human nature because a carnal person will see it quicker than the church person will. And I could see that some of these people weren't acting according to the way they were supposed to act, including even some of the ministry, and that was one of my excuses. Well, the biggest excuse was, of course, the same one my father had used. Surely you can't tell me all these churches are wrong. Now, the contrast between Herbert Armstrong in 1944 and, say, Dr. Norman Vincent Peale was absolutely enormous. We're talking about a, an absolute non-entity, a man that wasn't known by but a fraction of the people in maybe a few counties in Oregon, as opposed to national figures who were affiliated with churches that numbered up into the millions. So when I saw an article that was dealing with Christianity, they had systematically in this national magazine been going through all of the Oriental religions and Islam, back then Mohammedanism it was called, and finally came to Christianity, and they made a statement, first, let's understand what Christianity is not. It is not a way of life. Well, there was a student who actually left the college later on over some doctrinal disagreement. His name was Thomas Ham, H-A-M. I'll never forget that, because he was the student teacher that was filling in for my dad on this particular day. And well into the second semester, in the first year of Bible class, they always took the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, and the 15th chapter of that, I believe, or one of the middle segments of it, deals with church history, with ancient church history. And at least that part of it was somewhat interesting to me, and I didn't have all of my arguments intact and all of my defenses and my early warning radar was kind of down at the moment. I, I was kind of vulnerable because my dad wasn't there. So on this particular day, I wasn't drawing caricatures and shooting spitlobs. I was kind of reading along. Well, we got to this portion in the book of Acts, and it talked about this man, Apollos, a certain Jew, verse 24, named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man was instructed in the way of the Lord. Well, there was emphasis placed on that. My ears perked up, and I looked at that a while. I don't think I marked it right then. I may have marked it later. But I did mark it, and there's the mark still visible, a little check mark, kind of a dumb way to write, you know, a mark in a Bible. Later on, I underlined it and several other scriptures like it. It goes on to say, And being fervent in the Spirit, he spake and taught diligently the things of the Lord, knowing only the baptism of John. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Aquila and Priscilla had heard, they took him unto them and expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly. Two times I'm hearing about a way of the Lord, the way of God. Then a little later, we're coming along and we're reading through this portion, and we get to verse 9 of chapter 19, when different ones, diverse, were hardened, that is, they were irked, irritated, and they were offended and didn't believe what these people were telling them, and believe not, but speak evil of that way before the multitude, he departed from them, etc. And then a little later on, talking about the whole city, in verse 21, Paul purposed in his spirit when he'd passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. So he sent unto Macedonia two of them that ministered to him, Timotheus and, and uh, Erastus. But he himself stayed in Asia for a season. And at the same time, there arose no small stir about that way. 
four times, in the case of my Bible, on a two-page spread, in the Bible, not Herbert W. Armstrong's booklets, it did assert that God's truth, Jesus Christ and his teachings, were called a way of doing things, a mode of living, a manner of life, a way of life. But here I'd seen this, and I, I don't know if it was Norman Vincent Peale, I've got to go back to a library sometime and look it up and see who it was, but this national figure had said, in contravention and contradiction of everything my father was teaching, Christianity is not a way of life. Well, suddenly I had something that I'd never really had to deal with before. Now I was coming into conflict not with something my father handed me down, but something the Bible said as opposed to what some very respected, vaunted, Protestant, main, mainstream, fundamentalist preacher said. From that time on, I began to read a few things that my father had written, and I've told that story before, and I won't belabor that here. I want to turn to Proverbs 14 and verse 12. Two places in the Word of God, this scripture is repeated. Proverbs 14:12, and also in Proverbs 16:25. There is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Now, why did God repeat that twice? Give any situation you want to talk about, whether in some violent confrontation between two strong-willed men, an argument between husband and wife, a disobedient teenager, an unfortunate remark, uh, an off-color joke, uh, whatever you want to talk about. Any interpersonal human situation where there's an awkward thing here happening, how would you go about solving it? How do you greet people? What is the way in which you shake hands? I don't know that Jesus ever shook hands once in his life. That may not have been the mode back then. Well, I've had people stick out to me a palm that felt like they just dipped it in a, in a bucket of water. It was absolutely just wet and just about as limp as a silk hanky. Now, when you grab something like that, your first inclination is to say, ah, but you can't do that. You don't hurt somebody's feelings. So the way that you do it, if you have sweaty palms and you don't have much of a grip or you're afraid to shake somebody's hand because you were never taught as a youngster that we shake hands that way, I'll have little children, real sweet little boys, and say, shake hands, and they'll stick out their left hand. And I'll always say, no, are you left-handed? No, even if you're left-handed, you shake with your right hand. I'll kind of show them how. I'll say, go ahead, squeeze. Attaboy, squeeze real hard. There, that's the way we shake hands. And I've shook hands with a lot of little boys. But I've shook hands with thousands and thousands of people. Many times it's pleasurable. There's one gentleman I shake hands with only as often as, as I must. Uh, because every time he grabs a hold of my hand, I nearly want to check into the hospital. Powerful man. I mean, a forearm and arms that are just like steel. And I can almost hear the bones popping. I'm saying, hi, how are you? <laughs> you know, and he's got my hand and it's all I can do to just have it keep from breaking. And I'm just sort of defensive. The way to do that is get your hand up as far as you can and your thumb up as high on his wrist as you can and cup your hand. Don't let him break it if you, if you can avoid it. What is your manner of doing things? What is your method? What is your style? Whether we're talking about your style of dress, your manner or mode or method of walking, sitting, sitting down, standing up, eating. Now, many people that I watch eating, and I've seen this in restaurants and cafes, 
like to eat with their mouth open. They chew with their mouth open. And it's like these dryers in a, you know, an auto, automated laundry. You can see the clothes tumbling in there. Well, you see this bite coming around for about the third time. You know what I mean? And it just absolutely is obnoxious. So if that's your mode and that's your method and you fork food in there, and you're about two or three bites at a time and keep on talking. One of our office staff, young lady, a, a very sweet young lady, works at the office, and it was just hilarious. She was telling us a few weeks ago about a date she had with a fellow. And that he was talking to her loudly, and every now and then some of the rice in his mouth was hitting her in the face. And suffice it to say, it's the only date the guy was ever going to get. You just don't like to go picking rice out of your eyes and say, wonderful time, wonderful evening. There are certain things that we do, but let's get into the philosophical area of the interpersonal, social, moral, and maybe even the political arena. There's a way that some of us play a way that some of us play games, but there's also a way that we approach problems. There's a way that we try to solve problems. There is a way we attempt to voice our opinions. There is an approach or a point of view we have about the impending election. Now, if you take all of these things, I don't care if it's the way you walk your dog, and I don't mean Orientals in Los Angeles. You've heard about the new cookbook, How to Walk Your Dog. I, well, I'm sorry I said that, but I'm talking now about the way you do anything you do, all right? There is a way which seems right to a man. Now, basically, I think the way I do it is right. But, oh, have I got some bad news coming at the end of this verse, haven't I? Are you prepared for this? I mean, the way that I am standing here going through this sermon, I, I think I'm, I'm probably trying to do a good job here today. God's going to say, oh, no, you're not. You shouldn't have come up with that walk-your-dog joke. It's just not good. There may be some Orientals on the tape program. <laughs> but anyway, believe me, I have never yet given a perfect sermon, and I probably never will, short of the kingdom of God, and then maybe I finally will be able to if I make it into God's kingdom. There is a way which seems right. Let's think about that. Do you think Hitler thought he was right? Now think about, you can carry that statement right on back to Attila the Hun or to Cain when he rose up in wrath and slew his brother Abel, can't you? Well, the, the principle we're looking at here with this scripture, there is a way, a method, a manner, a mode. There is a political, personal, social, moral way of thinking, of looking at things, of acting, whether we're talking about such simple things as walking along, sitting down eating our food, brushing our teeth, knotting our tie, living our lives. There's your way, your manner, your mode, your method, your lifestyle. There's mine. And the Bible says the end thereof are the ways of death. Now, we would like to think that we're different. We have been converted. We're members of God's church. God says my ways are not your ways, and your ways are not my ways. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so much higher are my ways than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And the Bible says it hasn't entered into the heart of man. We don't look at one-tenth of one percent of the real ultimate truth of the things that God has prepared and has in store for us. We now, as though, look through a glass darkly, says James, or the apostle, well, James, yeah. 
and the Apostle Paul also inferred the same thing. Or we're like looking through a keyhole when there's a huge, big out of doors out there and we don't see but a tiny fraction of it. So even though we're in the church of God, we have a certain way of doing things, a way of approaching people, a way of dealing with problems. Is our way of handling it always right? Have you ever met anybody who is always right? Oh, I sure have. I have met people who are always right. Even their inclinations, I mean, things they do by accident are correct. Now, there are people that are some of the most famous artists in the world who have made fortunes by mistakes. There was once a guy that took the board on which he was wiping his brushes, and he looked at it one time, and it had all this kaleidoscopic confusion. He entered it into a contest, and he won. There was the fellow up in Seattle when they had some kind of an international uh, sculpture exhibit, and he was merely the caretaker that worked in the boiler room, and it was a piece of plate steel that over the years he'd had to take an acetylene torch and cut pieces out of and use it for repairing here and there, and he looked at it, and it kind of resembled Felix the Cat. Well, he snuck into the thing and took this thing and put it up on a pedestal somewhere and left it there and won first prize. And it was just a piece of scrap metal out of the boiler room. Now, you've heard of surrealism. One of the simplest paintings to understand that I've ever seen is a painting almost as big as this wall behind me in the museum down at USC in downtown Los Angeles. Absolutely coal black, just a huge big expanse of black, and one little stripe right down one side off center of white. Guess what was it? It was entitled Adam. Now, our black people aren't going to like that. See, because of what's that saying? But isn't that stupid? A stripe on a black backboard was Adam. And it was on display, and it was supposed to be worth a fortune. Unbelievable. The next question I ask is fairly simple, although we could get a little bit elaborate about how we might answer it. What do we want out of life? Well, simply put, you could take a steel of march right out of some of the founding documents of our country that we want the liberty and the freedom to pursue life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We want happiness. But we want more than that. We want joy, excitement, fulfillment, fun, good health, long life, completion, satisfaction, contentment. We don't want aches and pains. Most of us have a number of those. I certainly do. I got a chronic back problem, so my back hurts a lot. I got all kinds of troubles I could tell you about right now. A broken toe to go with a painful back. And all kinds of other little aches and pains. Not, not major ones. I'm still able to play basketball about three or four days a week, or five or six if I wanted to, but still aches and pains. We don't want sickness. I don't want that. I don't want poverty. I don't want squalor. I don't, I don't want to be surrounded by trash and filth. When I go to places like Bombay or Manila, and I look at these sewers that people are living in out there, I mean, it just is something that you want to go wash. You can't stand the sight. And there are human beings by the millions living like that. And privation, hunger, cold. I don't want failure. I don't want to be thwarted. I think all of us would probably say just about the same thing if we looked at a litany of what we want and what we don't want. Now, what do most people have? What do most people experience in life? I think you know and I know that there are not very many contented people out here. 
there aren't very many people who are reaping the rewards of the promises of God's word that are available if we would just reach out and avail ourselves of them. If we would just seize the opportunities that are there and apply the principles that God gives us, we would be successful in whatever we set our hand to do. What do we want? We want to be understood. We want to receive affection. We want to receive love. We want to receive respect. We want to receive from someone whom we love a reciprocation of that love which builds both of us up. And the way of man, the way of getting that in this world is the exact opposite of the way that really produces it. Let's go to Jeremiah, the second chapter in verse 4, and get a little bit of what God says about his people generally, and look at these two opposites that Jeremiah portrays, that God portrays through Jeremiah. Chapter 2, verse 4, Hear the word of the Eternal, O house of Jacob, and all the families of the house of Israel. Thus says the Eternal, What sin, what flaw have your fathers found in me, that they've gone far from me and have walked after vanity, and have become vain, pompous, proud, and egocentral, or egocentric, or just filled with vanity. They didn't say, where is the eternal that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, that led us through the wilderness, you might add, that brought us through the Red Sea, and that broke Egypt's back with plagues, and caused Aaron's rod to bud on one occasion, and devour snakes on another, and touched the river and turned it to blood, and all these powerful signs, through a land of deserts and pits, a land of drought, that rained down manna, that had the black cloud by day and the huge fire by night, and the soles of our shoes didn't wear out. They could have said it all. Passed through a land that no man dwelt. And I brought you into a goodly or a plentiful, a bounteous country to eat the fruit thereof. And if you recall the story of the original spies that went to spy it out, they came back with a huge staff and a bunch of grapes that were the size of lemons and oranges. And they were grapes, the kind of a grape you'd have to cut with a knife and divide it between four people. We're talking almost about gigantism in agriculture during those days. Truly, a land that flowed with milk and honey. I brought you into a plentiful country to eat the fruit thereof. And when fruit is ripe in the spring, the late spring here in Texas, and you get a peach that ripened on the tree. We used to have a little peach tree out in the backyard and have lost it because of disease eventually, but oh, how I would enjoy a bowl of those peaches with my cereal in the morning of the sweetness of a tree-ripened peach. Of course, I grew up in Oregon, and on my grandmother's farm were three kinds of apples, both black and English walnuts. There were prunes, there were about three kinds of grapes, concords and seedless. I remember wine saps and every different kind of apple. There were two kinds of pears, and my uncle grew everything from cabbage, corn, and potatoes. My grandmother had a garden that even had rhubarb in it. I would go around during the day, and I'd, I'd stay out all day long and never come in. My old face would just be red, and I'd have bits and pieces of fruit and vegetables and stuff all over me because I would even pick a potato out of the ground and rub it on my pants leg and eat a raw potato. Have you ever done that? I'd pick green beans and eat them. I mean, I've eaten every vegetable that is grown. I'd get the heart right out of a cabbage and eat the whole thing. Take corn off the shock and peel the silk away and start gnawing on a ripe, fresh, uh, big old roll of corn. Well, when you're, when you're thinking of these things, think about it. I mean, has anybody improved on that? What do you get when you go to, to a restaurant or what do you get when you go to the grocery store? You get polluted stuff today. 
all full of chemicals and everything. You've got to wonder about the wax on the Washington apples and the stories they talk about, you know, the penetration of certain uh, perhaps cancer-inducing stuff that they put in there to try to protect it from disease or from insects. And you wonder about some of the formaldehyde kind of substance they put on inside of a wrap of, of the meat to keep it red because the meat turns gray after a few days and housewives think that's bad. It's not. It's good. Meat's supposed to age, and gray meat is perfectly fine for you, but most housewives won't touch it because it's turned gray a little bit. You ought to see the way they sell it in the Middle East. It's hanging out of doors on a hook. And you walk up, and they grab the ham over there and chop off a piece, and the flies are buzzing around, you pick it up. Flies won't eat anything that's fresh. Flies won't hurt that fresh meat. They just won't. Oh, they'll lay eggs on it, but you can just wash the eggs off. That doesn't hurt anything. Only thing a fly's going to do is those eggs are going to hatch and the eggs are going to eat rotten meat. The eggs will not eat fresh meat. Did you know that? You know, way back when? Sounds awful. But when people had a gangrenous wound, they'd put maggots on it. And the maggots would eat away all the gangrene and leave the healthy flesh. Sounds yucky, doesn't it? It does. I'm just illustrating a point that, that many in, in, in our nation don't understand that Red, bright red meat probably hasn't aged sufficiently, but unfortunately some of these commercial interests will put a substance in a chemical on there, kind of like a preservative, like formaldehyde, which is probably very bad for us, and just a point in passing. So here's this beautiful, bounteous, corpuconia kind of a country to eat the fruit thereof and the goodness thereof, but when you entered, you defiled my land and made mine heritage an abomination. Why? Because they were doing what they thought was right. The apple growers think it is right to spray those trees to preserve as many apples as they can from the bugs instead of planting enough to share with the bugs. A Dr. Cole of Cornell told me at the American Association for the Advancement of Science meeting somewhere back in the early 1960s that if American farmers would get away from monoculture and they would say plant four rows of beans and then an open grassy area about four or five rows in width and then four rows of cabbage and a grassy area, and four rows of potatoes and then a grassy area, and four rows of corn and a grassy area, and so on and so on and so on. I said, in other words, to prevent certain types of stem rust, root rot, different types of little bugs and, and so on, blights, to attack monoculture, mile after mile after mile of milo, or mile after mile after mile of corn, where it all goes if you get the little bugs attacking it, you're saying that in order to resist this, we ought to plant just like a family garden. He said that's exactly right. I interviewed him for television. He was advocating that all of the Kansas, the Illinois, and Iowa farmers plant their crops that way. But see, that, that isn't commercially feasible because these great big machines can't go out there and it be, on the one hand, harvesting beans and the other harvesting corn. It doesn't work that way. You'd have to do it by hand. That's an interesting thought. I wonder if there's ever going to be a time where people are going to have to return to growing food by hand and growing food out of good soil that is not contaminated and growing enough for them and the crows and the birds on an acre of their own property. And if you only have an acre, you can watch it. If you only got one fig tree, you can sit there. You don't have to have a stuffed dummy with straw and a bright red bandana watching it for you. You can be sitting out there reading a book or talking to your grandkid and shooing away the crows, if the crows are still eating fruit by that time, which they may not be, who knows? You defiled my land, made mine heritage an abomination. The priest didn't say, 
Where is the eternal? Meaning, let's seek God, let's keep his laws, let's find the true God that displayed these marvelous signs and brought us out of the land of Egypt, and they that handle the law didn't even know me, didn't know of my existence. Can you imagine not even knowing the nature of God, the will of God, the laws of God? Yet, they are the lawyers. They handled the law. They interpreted the law, but they didn't know where the law came from. They were utterly ignorant of the origin of that law. The pastors also transgressed against me. Well, aren't we shocked at that? You mean pastors of flocks can transgress against God? Sounds like they certainly can sometimes. And the prophets prophesied by the Lord. The word Baal in Hebrew means Lord, remember, by Baal, the Lord, and walked after things that do not profit. Wherefore, I will yet plead with you, says the Eternal, with your grandchildren, with your children's children, will I plead. And that's what he's been doing down through the ages, sending his prophets, sending his ministers, pleading with people, as he says to Ezekiel, turn ye, turn ye, meaning repent ye, repent ye, for why will you die, O Israel? Pass over the isles of Kittim, or Cyprus, and see, send unto Kedar, way out in the outback desert, the other side of Petra, and consider diligently, and see if you can find such a thing. All right, do that mentally. See if you can find it in Bangladesh, see if you can find it in China, or Japan, or Africa, where animists believe that even grass have souls, as did uh, Socrates and Plato. Has a nation changed their gods which aren't gods? No. For thousands of years, they've been faithful to idols that aren't gods at all in the first place. But Israel changed within moments, within months, within weeks. Israel would change and reject the true God. But my people have changed their glory for that which is not profitable. It doesn't work. It doesn't pan out. It doesn't produce what they want. And why are they doing it? Because they are thinking they are right. It seemed right unto them. Now, when Jeroboam split off the northern tribes, he was very, very cherry of the religious affiliation of the people that he suddenly ended up having in his care of the northern ten tribes. And he was very afraid that he would lose an enormous amount of his own king's income and sustenance, but power is more at the root of the desire of a king, because a king, even over a comparatively small country, can live very well indeed. He wanted to hang on to all that he had, and even gain more beside. So the first artifice was, change God's law, change the annual holy days. His little hook to hang on to his people was, look, these people have seen that the priesthood is a closed, locked fraternity. Only the sons of Aaron can get into the priesthood. And so what I will do is make it available to the general public. And so he had a volunteer priesthood of sons of Belial, or men who, quote, knew not anything, who came from the dregs of society, who were uneducated, illiterate, were not qualified, and they became the priests of Baal, and he set up idols from Dan to Beersheba, and he set up a new center for the Feast of Tabernacles, not in the seventh month, but in the eighth month, and had them come to the feast a month later. So if you want to build something apart from the people of God, you've got to woo the people away by a different religious ceremony, different religious underpinnings. And that's what Jeroboam sought to do. 
See if other people have changed their gods, but my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be astonished, O you heavens of this, and be you horribly afraid, and be you very desolate, says the Eternal. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. That's the first evil. Fountain of living waters. Yes, and more. Cornucopia. Happiness. Understanding. Success. Joy. Love. Contentment. Yes, and adequate possessions, because as God said, even when Solomon himself did not desire riches, but said, I desire understanding, God said, because you have not asked for wealth or riches for yourself, but have asked for an understanding heart, I will add to thee riches beyond your wildest imagination. Sure, we're not to pray to be rich, but we can be rich in so many ways other than merely monetarily. You could take a look at that in the book of Proverbs, too, if you'd like, because God very clearly says so in Proverbs 13, 7, and I'll quote it. There is that maketh himself rich, yet has nothing, J. Paul Getty, and lots of other multimillionaires. There is that maketh himself poor, yet hath great riches. And that is talking morally and spiritually. My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, and when they did so, they were doing what they thought was right doing what they thought was best, doing what was politically expedient, doing the best they knew how. In that time, as it says in the close of the book of Joshua, there was no king in Israel, and every man did that which was right in his own sight. They don't, men just don't do that which is wrong in their own sight. Almost nobody ever does that. Well, certain hardened crooks and criminals know that it's wrong to do what they're doing. But by and large, you're talking about anybody from, uh, uh, you know, the used car dealer to whatever profession out here you want to say might be guilty of cutting a few corners, and you can really name anyone you want, because as long as carnal people are out there doing that, uh, you know they're going to do it. Have you ever had a TV set repaired? You ever had your car down there to Mr. Goodwrench? Uh, have you ever, as a woman, and not knowing much about cars, driven in and had them tell you all these things about the, you know, Bema Hater and as, as old uh, Cosby says, and all these crazy sounding names that you don't know anything about and give you a great big bill for about $117, find out later on they didn't touch a thing? I told you about the man who died of a heart attack here in Tyler that worked for O.J. Oldsmobile, didn't I, one time? Well, he was a man that had his own garage shop. And he died of a heart attack, and his wife thought that he would sell, that she would sell all the tools and the things that were out there. And she opened up the bottom drawers of his great big metal tool chest, and here were two big drawers filled with brand new, in-the-box spark plugs. You, you can follow what, what happened, why those spark plugs were there, can't you? The lunch pail, the many, many times that he allegedly changed somebody's spark plugs. But the new spark plugs went in his lunch pail, and the old ones were just gapped and filed a little bit and put right back in. It's only one story out of so many. See, I used to walk security guard in the Miramar uh, Naval Air Station tank farm, and they had warehouses out there and tanks and trucks and all kinds of stuff parked out there, multiple hundreds of millions of dollars worth of things. And many civilians would work in there during the day, but during the night they were closed down. Later on, after we stopped the shotgun walks, we got some dogs, and we had a canine corps that our security department was responsible for. And these civilians got on to certain methods that they could use. 
And they would even tape coils of copper tubing inside the hubcaps of their automobiles. So we got on to where you actually have to even take the hubcaps off automobiles to search the civilians when they're going out the door or out the gate. Or they'd be driving along nonchalantly and they'd toss it over the fence and then come by north of the fence and get it that night. So we began jeep patrols outside the fence to try to keep them from robbing the Navy blind. Because if it's federal government, people are going to try to steal. Did you ever build a building? Ever subcontract? Ever ask for somebody to show up to do something about your house on a certain day or a certain time and then look at the bill in amazement? As you deal with people humanly in this society, you and I both know that nearly everyone you meet is dishonest to some degree or another. That you can't trust people. They are going to take advantage of you. And we know that. So, when you see these two opposites, my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me. That's God, his law, the Ten Commandments, as Jesus Christ magnified them in the Sermon on the Mount, the fountain of living waters, everything we really want, and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. We have a flawed system. We have a flawed way of life. We have a way of doing things, and it is our way. And mostly, we like that way. And we think it is right. And what is it? producing, by and large. Now, hopefully that applies mostly to those of us prior to conversion, and maybe some of the rough edges have been knocked off, and maybe there are some differences today. We certainly hope so. But there is a way of living. John 1.17 says, The law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. And that way of living expressed in the Sermon on the Mount and several other scriptures in the New Testament, I'm going to read a couple, three of them in concluding here in a minute, has to do with everything in your lifestyle. The way you work, whether you are a person of total dedication, total loyalty, total industry, industry, total diligence, total honesty, whether you are a believer in not the Protestant work ethic, but God's work ethic of hard, diligent, faithful work for an honest, decent day's Hey, that's not some so-called Judeo-Christian Protestant ethic. That's God's principle out of the Word of God. Whatsoever you your hand finds to do, that do with your might, as unto the Lord and not unto a man. So the boss, the person for whom you, whom you work, I don't care if you're busting dishes at McDonald's, you treat that person like it were Jesus Christ and work just like he were sitting there taking note of what you're doing. How long do you think you'd stay a busboy? With that kind of diligence, with that kind of an attitude, I believe that no matter what endeavor a person began to become involved in, whatever, however they did, I can tell you a story that happened in Longview many, many years ago. There was a guy that couldn't get a job, and there was an ice plant over there. And he walked by, and he was walking the streets and banging on doors and looking at the one ads. He was just trying to get a day labor job. And it was just so messy, and there was trash all over the place, and old sacks, and broken pallets, and wooden stuff, and splinters, and the parking lot was filthy. And he went over there and started cleaning it up. Somebody came out and said, hey, you, what are you doing? He said, I'm just cleaning the place up. i got nothing better to do. And they said, well, I'm sorry, we don't need anybody around here. We can't pay you. Well, that's okay. He just kept cleaning. He kept working. And he kept it up for about three days. And that place looked so spick and span and so beautiful. And he was a member of our church. And the guy came out there and gave him a job. He said, you know, you become indispensable. We want you around here all the time. And moved him inside and told him he was going to be a custodian and he was going to keep the place spick and span. He was willing to work for several days. Why not? He had nothing better to do. He was unemployed anyway. 
And he got himself a job by proving that they needed him, and they didn't think they did. I think with the motivation of Jesus Christ and God's Holy Spirit that people can find work, because there's always work to do. There are the chronic unemployed, but there's a difference between a position and work. It's a way of living, a way of work, a way of education. When you want to study something, when you go to school, do you do it diligently, with motivation? Do you study? Do you pay attention? Are you self-disciplined? Do you want, seriously, to learn? If you do, nothing can impede your progress. You will learn, you will absorb it, and you will improve. We used to talk about dating, the way to have a perfect date. Sounds almost trite, doesn't it? But there are so few people that seem to know. And we talked about the intellectual aspects of it. We talked about getting to know one another, about mutual likes and dislikes, and the wrong kind of date, the wrestling match in the portable bedroom in the back seat of somebody's car on Lover's Lane, the usual idea of young people who want to be all excited about physical contact but know nothing about what goes on in each other's mind. And we would try to teach students those things. Preparation for marriage, but always in the light of God's laws. Tell me one aspect of human life, whether it is growing up and going off to kindergarten, whether it is graduating from high school, whether it's your first date, young lady 16, going to the prom, and what Dad says about, I'll be waiting up for you when you come home, I'll be in a window watching, that type of thing. Any aspect of life that God's laws do not immediately apply. Then you look at the difference between people are living their lives, and then you say, what if God's laws had been implied or, or applied here instead of the way that seemed so right at the time? What would be the difference in the outcome? What about your life? Think back of certain major crossroads in your life, certain major crises. Many of you in this room have been divorced, sometimes more than once. Some of you have been put upon by other people. Some of you have had all sorts of traumas and tragedies. There's not a person in this room that has not lost a loved one, even if it was a grandparent that you love dearly because they don't live forever. And many of the rest of you have had tragedies that are just unspeakable. You have lost people very, very close to you. You have your own personal problems. You've suffered diseases. Many of you have had operations. You've lost spouses. You've lost children. You've seen babies die. There are a lot of scars that are not visible on a lot of us in this room. In every case, somehow, somewhere, the inputs that brought about that wretched situation, that terrible crisis in your life, was because several people probably including yourself, were doing what they thought was right. They weren't deliberately saying, I know this is wrong and I'm going to do it because I just want to hurt myself. You're not going to walk to the nearest brick wall and start banging your head on there and somebody come by and find your scalp all bloody and say, what in the world are you doing that for? And you say, because it feels so wonderful when I quit. You don't usually do that. The results are automatic. In our interpersonal relationships, even in eating, how many people are there? I go down to the cafeteria, we go to local restaurants here for lunch oftentimes in Tyler, and we look at people, and here will be some people walking by, and uh, 
you know, you can, you can look at their, their trays and they've got a weight problem and here on the tray will be all kinds of starch and here will be, you know, fried chicken and maybe macaroni and cheese, couple of slices of bread, a great big banana cream pie. And I mean, you're saying, I feel sorry for these poor people, but it's not as if somebody was lying flat in their back with a potato masher just cramming that food in there and they don't have anything to say about it. They are doing it themselves and it feels right at that moment. They feel right about it. God's law is about clean and unclean. You know, God said anciently, thou shalt not eat the fat. It took the AMA until 1980s to say thou shalt not eat the fat. Thousands of years later, they finally decide cholesterol will build up in your arteries and impede the flow of blood and you'll have a heart attack and die, and that's from eating fat in your food. And God said, don't eat the fat. But he said that way back under Moses, didn't he? Don't eat the fat. It's not good for you. Trim it out. Don't cook in fat. Don't eat fat. Finally, they're telling us, don't eat the fat, and there have been a lot of furors about even the advertisement and the labels as to whether or not it's fat or cholesterol, and some of these shady characters are trying to make us think the one thing is, one, is, is fat when it's not, and cholesterol when it's not, and they're lying to us even on the labels. So they got into that at long last. Let's go to Galatians 5.19, a familiar scripture. I'll just hurry through a couple of them to cap this off right quickly. Galatians 5.19, we're familiar with the works of the flesh. But these are the things, doing what comes naturally. Remember the old song, doing what comes naturally? The works of the flesh are manifest, and that is those things which seem to be right to a man. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, which is basically banqueting, overindulgence, just satiating the appetites and so on. Idolatry, witchcraft. Hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, oh, there are lots of those, seditions, hidden agendas, people with their own little schedules because of certain lust and vanity and desire for power, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, wild parties. We have people almost continually, every single week, I'm hearing people crying out in parts of the country, and we get our letters there on Friday morning prayer breakfast of people in drive-by shootings, people who live in neighborhoods where there are crack houses, people living in neighborhoods where there are bullet holes in their own wall, middle-aged and elderly people that have got to hit the floor because people are driving by shooting bullets into their house at night over here in Dallas. The president visited one portion of a neighborhood where they had said to uh, taken back their neighborhood, but that's very few and far between. In most cases, there isn't anything the law can even do about it. There are people that drive by regularly in parts of this country and see the portions of dogs and cats lying on the side of the road where Satanists have been dissecting and dismembering animals in ritualistic sacrifices, and it happens in Tyler, Texas, and in little tiny towns all around the country where people worship Satan the devil. All of this is a litany of people doing that which they think is right. Are Satanists having fun? Do they think they've really hit on something that is the key to something good? Or do they just think, boy, this is evil. I really hate this. No, they think that's the right way. They've decided cynically that the power with whom they want to come in contact is the only power that gets anything done. And they want to hook their star to the devil instead of to God. And the devil is only too happy to accommodate them. The ends there are the ways of death. I tell you in time past, they that do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is the exact opposite. 
love. And what was it that introduced 1 Corinthians, the 13th chapter, on the last verse of the 12th chapter, when it talks about the body? Yet I will show you a most excellent way, isn't it? Then comes that beautiful chapter about love. It is kind. It is patient. It vaunts not itself. It always believes the best. It endures all things. It, is, it gives all of these wonderful attributes of that kind of agape or agape love. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. If you have the Spirit of God, what flows out from you? What is it that comes out of your eyes? How do you carry yourself? How do you conduct yourself? How do you live your life? You live your life loving, caring, letting love flow. How many songs are there? Let the love flow. You know, there are so many songs about love. And so few people that seem to live a life of love. Joy, how little we seem to experience. How many times the headaches, the tension, the frustrations, the enervation, the exhaustion as a result of mental contests with situations and with people that just wear you down. How many times do you get up and the birds are singing and you hear them? How many times do you get up and feel like painting the sunrise? How many times do you get up with a skip in your step and eager to go to work and thinking, I just can't wait to begin my day? There are opposites at work here. Peace, contentment that I talked about, long-suffering, goodness, uh, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. There is a way that seemeth right to a man, and the ends thereof are automatic. There are two automatic principles at work. It's absolutely automatic. It is a fixed law, just like the law of inertia and gravity and any law of physics, and you cannot break that principle. Break God's laws, they break you. And God takes away his blessing and adds to you his cursing and then waits for you at the end of your life, and he will destroy you in Gehenna fire. Break his law, and you automatically throughout your life will experience kicks, cuts, bruises, aches, pains, hangovers, frustration, sickness, squalor, disease, poverty, frustration, failure, and ultimately death. And at the end of that, he will jerk you back alive, show you an approaching wall of flame, and destroy your miserable soul in Gehenna fire. That's the way that seems right to a man. It's a broad way. It's just lit with sparkling lights. It's attractive. It's the midway. It's carnival. It's Coney Island. It's the rides at Six Flags. It's the bright way. Seems so good to a man. But there's a narrow, straight, ruddy, twisted, torturous, difficult way that God says is only lit by the glowing, dull light of a lamp that David said, barely shown enough to show him where to put his next step. Thy law is a lamp unto my feet. And that's called the straight way, and that way is automatic. When you pursue that way, you can't begin to impede the blessings of God that are just pouring out upon you. It's automatic. Here and now, you receive a job, a raise in pay, better health, 
more friends, more happiness. Everything you want starts coming to you when you live according to God's principles in the here and now. And then afterward, at the end of your life, God adds his wonderful blessings of eternal life. And you receive wonderful joy, love, fulfillment, understanding, happiness, contentment, peace, gentleness, goodness, faith, every step of the way, and are rewarded for all eternity at the end. And yet, that way won't always seem right to you at first glance. You've got to study, and you've got to think, you've got to knock on several doors, open them a crack mentally, look in, is that the way to do this? Well, let me come back tomorrow and wonder about that again. And then finally, when you make up your way, and your, your, your mind is made up with God's laws and all of these considerations taken into your mind, you've decided this is God's way, and then you say, just like George Patton, know you're right, and then go ahead. And we will conclude with the tenth chapter of the book of Hebrews in verse 20, because this talks, too, about a way. Hebrews 10 and verse 20. I'll read up to it in verse 19. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest, and that is, into the very presence of God as symbolized by the high priest on the Day of Atonement that we will be celebrating here in a few days, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he has consecrated for us through the veil which separated mankind from God's presence, the tapestry over the Holy of Holies in the temple, symbolic, barring the way to God's presence in heaven and therefore to salvation. That is, his flesh, because he died for our sins. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Merely metaphor, talking about the next time you take a shower and you got that bar of soap and you're giving it a real good go around over your body, be praying to Almighty God as I'm washing myself physically. I pray you will wash me with your Holy Spirit internally and spiritually. And our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful at promise, and let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more, as you see the day approaching. Let us live God's way. How glad I am that my dad was absent from class long ago, and a student teacher was there who just happened to go over four times in a two-page spread in a Bible that was given to me by my mom that I never picked up and read until I got to Ambassador College, but was in my possession for many, many years, and I saw the word this way, that way, and made my first little check mark in my Bible. <laughs>